Hello, baseball fans, and welcome to Sully Baseball. This is the podcast where we talk about baseball 52 weeks out of the year. There is no offseason, and I'm your host, Paul Francis Sullivan. Please call me Sully. I'm recording from Sully Baseball Studio in Pasadena, California, overlooking the historic Rose Bowl. Today, we are doing what everyone is doing around Christmas time, and that is talking Miami Marlins baseball. So we have the second part of my conversation with the editor of Fish Stripes, Mr. Eli Sussman, a man who knows a little something about Marlins baseball. And today, I want to talk to him about the podcast that I recorded a few weeks ago, where I praise the devotion of Miami Marlins fans. So Eli, welcome back to the show. It's a pleasure being on with you, Sully. So if you remember, let me, let me actually, I'm going to go back to um, my beloved uh, Sully Baseball account here. Uh, I did a podcast on the 12th day of December where I praised Marlin fans as being the most loyal in all of baseball. And my mindset was, if you're a Miami Marlin fan who shows up, you put on your your cap, you put on your, you either go old school teal or you go your new school orange and you show up and you know the players and you cheer them and you love them, you live for the Marlins. That shows a devotion unlike any other fan base because they don't have the history of a team like the Indians, the Red Sox, the Pirates, or the Yankees. They don't have the aura of being a noble failure, you know, like the Cubs were for so many years because they've had the two championships. And the only time the press ever seems to talk about Marlins fans is questioning their existence, saying that there no one shows up to Marlins games, they don't have a fan base or anything like that. So I talked about that on the podcast. I yapped about that. I want to get your take on this, because you know Marlin fans, and you have a stronger sense of Marlin fandom and the angst and the devotion that they have. and. Tell me a little bit of how far off was I, and tell me about the state of Marlin fandom, especially in the wake of the Giancarlo Stanton trade and the new ownership. Well, I listened to that podcast that you did, and the reality, I would say, is somewhere in the middle of um, the thoughts that you expressed, and also the general national narrative is is not completely off. It's kind of a compromise where I agree that a lot of the Marlins fans that, that I engage with, and I engage with a lot of them because I operate the Fish Stripes social media accounts, so every little bit of feedback that they have, I see it, and I usually have to respond to it. Those that are engaged right now really have this superhuman uh, ability to like connect themselves with this team that – that I'd say not as many teams really have because not as many teams will put you through the type of trauma that you get from following the Marlins fans closely for the last 25 years, or really for like any small pocket of the last 25 years. There's so many ups and downs and mostly, mostly it's about the downs. So those that are engaged with the team right now, even through this recent fire sale and through some of the previous ones that, their devotion really is almost unmatched by anybody else because it's an amazing loyalty to a franchise that generally hasn't shown loyalty towards them. Uh, at the same time, the reason why 
their attendance is low, why their viewership is low, and why it seems that so many people, so few people, like will identify as Marlins fans is because that's partially reality too, because a lot of fans are disengaged from the team because of those same ups and downs that they. Uh, some of it was personal as well. When I lived in Miami, there were people that told me they would stay away from Marlins Park because they hated the owner, Jeffrey Loria, that much, that they detested him, that they took personal offense to what he did, and that that really shunned them away. Um, so it's somewhere in the middle where there is a very passionate minority of fans, but Miami is this large baseball market that has – so many baseball fans, and the reality is just a lot of them aren't Marlins fans. They're baseball fans without being Marlins fans um, for reasons that the team itself has has not been good and has not been consistent and has not really been relevant in a long time. So it's, it's a very complicated place that the franchise is in where it has these two distinct types of fans. Would they be Marlin fans – if they were, you know, contending more, if they were able to keep the players longer, if they're, I mean, you even look at there's some other uh, teams. I mean, I'll take the their their cousin in expansion, the Rockies. You know, they right. they they've had issues where they couldn't keep their stars, and they've they Rockies and the Marlins are the only two franchises to have never won a division title, and yet you see devoted Rocky fans. And you also see some players like Larry Walker played there for a long time. Uh, Todd Helton played his entire career there. Carlos, you know, Carlos Gonzalez played there for uh, a, a long time. You know, I mean, you see they get to have at least some players that the fans could get attached to. Is that part of what keeps Miami Marlin fans away is knowing, well, what's the point of getting attached to Stanton or to Miguel Cabrera or to Marcelo Zona, you know, they're just going to trade away anyway. Yeah, it's there. And now there've been a few exceptions where uh, I think even though when Jose Fernandez was around, even though he was represented by Scott Boris and even though fans knew there's no way he's signing an extension here, there's no way he's staying any longer than he has to. He was he just connected on so many other levels to the fans, and obviously his, his performance was so extraordinary that they were so grateful for it. And to a lesser extent, Giancarlo Stanton had that same effect on people, where just the unique skill set he had and like the amazing experience it was to watch him play got got people you know excited regardless, even if the team wasn't going to be good. It's it's just a difficult combination of obviously trading those guys away of the team, just not having any consistent competitive chances year to year. And, but, and I think more so just the unique brand of bad decisions that the team would make that, that when they were looking to upgrade in one of the seasons, when they were relevant, they would make bad decisions in the trade market. And then just obviously off the field, a lot of the uniquely bad, um, optics that just the terrible PR that really has now followed the new ownership group too. Um, So even when the team itself hasn't done anything exceptionally bad from a baseball perspective, 
they've just found creative ways to embarrass the Marlins organization and fans just don't want to be a part of it. You know, they, they love their baseball and they want to, they would be willing to, you know, actually pay for a great baseball team, but the team itself has just been so poorly managed through the years. And I think it almost in a unique way, I, I, any other organization, even one that's been also inconsistent like the Rockies, it hasn't been the same degree of embarrassment through the years. No, and even their their fellow uh, Floridian franchise in in the Rays, while they've had sell-offs and everything, they have found ways to, you know, they went on a nice string of trips to the postseason. And even this last year where they wound up with a losing record, they contended for a wild card for a stretch of the period of time. There was a little bit of hope that was lingering around in Tampa Bay. And there have been players that you can point to and identify with as Rays. Not all of them stayed forever, you know, but I mean, Longoria certainly you can identify as a Ray. You know, Price right. played a long time there and had a lot of success with the Rays. Uh, you know, you don't have that sense with the Marlins even if you're going to create who are the great Marlins of all time, you're going to associate them with other teams, you know? Right. Right. On that, on that point, the Marlins, there was this actual league wide promotion a few years ago where they called it franchise four. Right. And it was part of um, MLB.com where they had fans vote on who they thought best, the four players best represented the organization and the, and for the players, for the Marlins, well, two of the players of that franchise four for the Marlins were, were Jeff Conine and Giancarlo Stanton. And those are ones that the fans loved uh, just a couple of years ago and thought they best represented the team throughout its history. And new ownership has just gotten rid of both those guys, Conine as an advisor and then Stanton as a player. And another one of those franchise four was Gary Sheffield who a lot of people would identify with other teams. Yeah. Having, he being a guy that was especially well-traveled, but he's in his early career, he was with the Marlins. He had some great seasons early with the Marlins. And he had a great postseason in 97. If they had handed out – if they gave out a Division Series MVPs, he would have been the Division Series MVP against San Francisco in 1997. Exactly. Yeah, so that's – again, that's – that's part of it. That's definitely part of it is the player movement, the inability to the inability or the unwillingness to retain some players for a long time. And then even when they, you know, express a desire to do so, as they did at one point with Stanton with that extension, um, they just haven't been able to actually hold up to their promise of doing that. I wonder how much the I mean, in one way, a, a knockout punch for the fandom in Miami, at least from my point of view. And I want to know if I'm, if I'm, you know, barking up the wrong tree here. But for years and years, when you know they won their two World Series, uh, and then they went on that streak at the end of the 2000s where they had microscopic payrolls and yet were wild card contenders into the second half of the season each year. There was almost a mantra that if they got a new stadium, things would be different. The problem is the fact that they play in I, I'm I'm just going to call it Joe Robbie Stadium. They they played in a football stadium 
that was wide open. Right. You got rained on. It was a terrible place to see a ball game. You know, if they ever got their own ballpark, things would be different. And then finally, in 2012, not only did they get their own ballpark, but they spent money to bring in Mark Burley and Jose Reyes and Heath Bell. There was another acquisition I can't remember off the top of my head, but you know that they that they splurged. We got a stadium, we got stars, we brought in Ozzy Guillen, who was a high, you know, obviously had led the White Sox to the championship as a manager and had ties to the Marlins 2003 season as a coach, you know, that everything was lining up that finally, uh, you know, you finally fired that round off. And when that didn't work, well, then not only did it not work, but it was the same old story. They dumped everyone off. There was no other, I mean, at that point, there must have been a sense of deflation amongst Marlin fans. Like we got the stadium, we brought in stars, and even that didn't work. Yeah, it felt like that was the last excuse that the organization had for not drawing people or um, being so widely accepted. And I, even at the time, and even more so in hindsight, you know, the the whole <laughs> the whole idea for building that stadium. It was um, it was not well executed. I mean, for one, it's publicly funded, yeah, and it was publicly defunded um, through bonds that were deferred in a way that the city actually ends up paying upwards of two billion dollars for the stadium, and so that's not one, especially considering that they were playing in that football stadium prior to that one that they didn't have to build themselves either. You would think that these deep pocketed owners would you know pitch in uh, a lot more than they did for actually constructing that stadium right. uh the choice for locating the stadium was also a little bit curious in that it was in the middle of what was mostly a residential neighborhood in little havana uh instead of something more scenic uh closer to miami beach uh which is where the miami heat play uh, american airlines arena so that that choice was it's was somewhat inaccessible uh, Miami has a big driving culture, which is not all that different from LA, and so the fact so it wasn't really all that in, all that inconvenient for people to drive there and to park in the garages surrounding the stadium, um, except for the fact that it was put in this residential neighborhood that didn't have a whole lot of extra parking options in the surrounding area. Like one of the great scenes that I remember is that I was at opening day. Uh, the very first game that they played and that game sold out, believe it or not, an actual sellout in Miami, that first game in 2012, but hundreds of cars were parked at these homes surrounding the stadium. They were parked in people's driveways and on people's front lawns. And it's, that's a practice that's actually continued for the games that, that are actually well attended is that instead of parking in the garages at the stadium, uh, people that live a few blocks away will sell out spots for fans to park in their homes and literally like on their property. Uh, so the choice, it, there's not much of a public transit option to get there. And the congestion surrounding the ballpark when games are actually well attended is just, is it's really uncomfortable. So, 
So the, when they were going ahead with this project and the actual stadium itself, I would say is, is a very respectable place. Um, it has good amenities. It's kept clean and it's at least a unique visual. You know, people will, will tease it about the home run sculpture and about the color scheme, but at least it's distinct. At least it's creative. Uh, for all that and for you know, what's a pretty decent product, one that most importantly has that retractable roof to keep fans comfortable during the game, they really screwed up on a lot of these like surrounding details. And there's really no going back from that. You know, this was their one shot to excite people with the stadium. And that excitement wore off in, in record time. I'm glad you said one thing about the stadium because I've never stepped foot in Marlins Park. But I've been a big fan of it from the beginning because, yeah, it looks weird. But you don't watch a Marlins game and think, what stadium is this? Wait, wait, what, what park okay. is this? Because it's funny that when I, I'm a little bit older than you and I grew up in the – I came of age in baseball in the 80s and there was still a lot of the concrete donuts like you know, Veterans right. Stadium, Three River Stadium, Riverfront Stadium, all those. And I'm, I have nostalgia for them because the first World Series I ever watched was 79. That was you know, We Are Family Pirates winning in Riverfront Stadium. The Big Red Machine played in Riverfront Stadium. Uh, uh, Pirates played in Three River Stadium. My memories of the Phillies winning in the Vet. I mean, the, my memories of the Ozzie Smith Cardinals playing in Bush Stadium. Uh, and even the beginning of the, the Braves run with like the Francisco Cabrera hit and all that took place in the concrete donut that was in Atlanta. So I have mm -hmm. nostalgia for some of those concrete donuts. I know you're not, we're not supposed to, but I have, you know, but I do. And when they started building a lot of the retro parks, some of them have great look and feel, you know, Camden Yards, obviously, uh, I'm just going to call them by the names. I remember them by, you know, Jacobs field in Cleveland, obviously uh, I've been to, Many, many games, including World Series game in AT&T Park in San Francisco, which I think is the best park in baseball. And Petco Park in, in San Diego is amazing. But the new stadium in Philadelphia, the new stadium in Washington, the new stadium in St. Louis, they all look the same to me. They all look exactly <laughs> right. the same to me. I can't, I can't tell the difference between the two. There was one year where the Phillies played the Cardinals in the postseason. I'll be damned if I knew which stadium they were playing in. And so – it's created almost a new cookie cutter uh, feel to these stadiums. So when I look at the Miami stadium with the wacko sort of Malibu Barbie dream house color scheme they have in there and that wackadoodle statue in left center field, I kind of dig it. it. It's, it feels like Miami. I did a video about this back in 2011 when they were announced the, 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 the design of the statue and everything. And that was, it feels like Miami. It doesn't feel like we're trying to create some sort of phony baloney nostalgia like they have in Houston with the you know bullshit train that runs over there and the and the hill they built in center field for no reason that they finally took down. That this feels kind of wild, kind of out there. It feels like it, it feels like Miami, and and I think that people will grow to love that stadium. Once they start winning in that stadium, once you start getting positive memories in that stadium and 
And I, I think that what looks upon as a, uh, a negative, at least visually now, will become a positive once you start winning games in there. Right. And from living in, in Miami, one of the stronger fan bases down there is, is the Miami Dolphins as well in the NFL. And their stadium location isn't ideal either. It's in the middle of, of nothingness, a little north of the rest of the city. And, and their, their team hasn't even won a Super Bowl in 45 yeah, years. But, but it's not a problem. It's not a lack of an appetite for sports down there. And that's that's the misconception that everybody has is that People in Miami don't care because it's beautiful down there and, and sports aren't as emphasized. But, I mean, that's not really true. I mean, people will still show out year after year for for a team as long as that team is consistently there and as long as that team isn't going out of its way to do ridiculous things. And um, that stadium went through recent renovations. It's now called Hard Rock Stadium. And they recently – um, at least spent some money to to shine it up and spruce it up a little bit and make it a better experience. But even before that, even when it was it was it was pretty generic up until a few years ago. It was a cookie cutter version of a of a football yeah. stadium, and um, even despite that, I mean, people um, they're willing to look past that to just be a part of something that's consistent. And Marlins Park, it's not the park itself is not it's not stopping anybody from falling in love from seeing it uh, plenty of times as both a fan and then also in the press box. It's a place that you enjoy being at, and uh, you'd enjoy being at it more if there was a lot of enthusiasm in the building, which there really hasn't been. But it's it's really not the fans' fault, and I think the fans would would really make it a great atmosphere if the team gave them reason to do so. I went back in time and I told you back in 2010 that by the end of 2017, the Marlins would have their own ballpark and Loria wouldn't be the owner anymore. You would see Marlin fans would assume it was a great renaissance in the history of the franchise. And so now the last of the excuses that they had was well now we need new ownership well they got it they got it and right you know it's interesting that you say that maybe they're just trying to to wipe clean everything this any stink of loria even if it's something positive on the surface like the presence of tony perez andre dawson and and jeff conan um i i have a question to ask you then we'll wrap things up here uh the when I think about like other franchises here in LA, you go to Dodger games, they'll show Sandy Koufax. They obviously they show Fernando Valenzuela clips. They show the clips of Kirk Gibson's home run. You go to Yankee stadium. You must know that they, you know, you, they play everything from Ruth up through Aaron judge. And they try to make it like a, a, a never ending narrative. You know, in San Francisco, they show the great clips of Mays and McCovey and Will Clark and Barry Bonds and up to Lincecum and Posey. They show the clips in 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 Oakland, the great clips they show of like the Mustache Gang and Ricky Henderson and Dave Stewart and Canseco and and all of them. What are the moments in for Marlin fans that they cling to the most and that are the most treasured memories for Marlin fans? 
there's more than you might figure, um, which has always impressed me. It's obviously during both of their playoff runs in 97 and in 2003, uh, you could go through pretty much every series in both of those runs and you have dramatic comebacks. You had uh, walk-off home runs. Mm-hmm. You had entering the NLCS against the Cubs that after Steve Bartman, you know, made himself infamous, there was actually an amazing yeah. rally at Wrigley Field. So that entire rally in what was it, the top Up of the eighth, yeah. eighth, eighth run rally, including the yeah. Mike Mordecai bases clearing double that basically put the uh, a nail in the coffin. And even outside of the actual winning teams, this is against, I guess, all odds and with um, some inconsistency, especially on their pitching staff. The Marlins have pitched six no-hitters in 25 right. years, which which I believe is more than any other team during that span. And there were some no-names that did it, like Henderson mm-hmm. Alvarez, uh, which was – and his was memorable because they – they pitched nine no-hit innings, and the game was still scoreless. So they had to win the game in the bottom of the ninth inning to get him a no-hitter, and they did that on a wild if pitch. I, if I remember that the, game correctly, there was two outs. It was a runner on third, and Alvarez was on deck. It was <laughs> yes, yeah. it, was, <laughs> it was on and uh, there. And then five, and then most recently, they had a no-hitter this past year with Endinson right. Volquez. They had just great individual performances from Giancarlo Stanton. They had plenty of them from Jose Fernandez as well. Uh, and if, just going through all the seasons, they had a lot of really fun players. Uh, Dontrell Willis was fun in a lot of the same ways that right. Jose was. And that he, he was a great offensive pitcher as well. And he had, he had these several amazing performances where he would dominate on the mound and then also hit a home run. They've had fun players, and that's one thing they're not lacking is fun moments. And one of the shames is that the new ownership decided to get rid of Rich Waltz, the play-by-play man, because I put up in in on the eve that, I guess the night after he was dismissed, I, I put together this thread of all these great highlights where he was calling those big moments, and he had such a great talent for doing that for really balancing the excitement, but also really articulating it well to the people watching at home. So, I mean, they have no shortage of those great memories, both the visual and the audio part of it in both the good years and even in the bad years. They've they've had a lot of moments that they and cherish. Think about this for a second, too, and that their first two ever postseason games were walk-off victories against San Francisco. Right. They had a wild six-game NLCS where they defeated the Braves who looked invincible uh, in the late in the late 1990s uh, and then won that surreal game seven against Cleveland and then they had the the two run two out bottom of the tenth walk off single by Pudge Rodriguez against San Francisco and the very next day the series ending with uh, Pudge Rodriguez holding on to the ball as JT Snow tried to crash home plate and the series people mainly remember Bartman, but that series had extra inning games, wild comebacks left and right. And the series against the Yankees was, was a real thriller. I mean, there's, 
you know, you have a walk-off home run by Gonzalez in the World Series in 2003 as well, in that weird little pocket of left field where the scoreboard happened to jut down, and he dunked it over that part of the wall. Uh, yeah, there's yeah. there's great, great moments in Marlins history, and you know, maybe, heaven forbid, there'll be new ones eventually coming up soon. <laughs> yeah, and uh, one thing they've done – this particular offseason with some of the trades is that the prospects they've been getting in return have not necessarily been safe bets, but they've been really dynamic prospects, uh, especially in the trade with the St. Louis Cardinals. They got one of the hardest throwers in the minor leagues, Sandy Alcantara, who hit 101 when he was pitching for the Cardinals as a rookie last year. And they got this speedster, Magneris Sierra, who also spent very limited time in the majors, but when he was, uh, StatCast had measured him as one of the absolute speediest players in the whole game. These are guys with really dynamic talent, at least, that even if the team is not winning, and you know Marlon Sands have been through that before, they're not winning, you can still have something to look forward to, and you could still hope that they give you those moments or those singular performances that, that you remember for a long time. All right, man. Well, look at, um, I wish I, I hope the Marlins do well. I, cause they're an intriguing franchise. It would be fun to see a postseason in that crazy stadium. Eli Sussman, why don't you tell people where you can, where people can find you? Yeah, you can find me personally on Twitter. Um, my handle is real Eli. With my la- with my first name, which is spelled E L Y, a little different than most of them. I operate all the social channels for Fish Stripes, which is just those two words together, Fish Stripes. So usually, when you see anything coming out of those, it's in my voice. Uh, all our content from Fish Stripes is on the website, which is just fishstripes.com. And if anybody just wants to contact me outside of that, you could always get me on email with eli.sussman at gmail.com. Right. Well, hey, Eli, thanks so much for being part of the show. And for the rest of you, go to sullybaseball.com, like me on Facebook, subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, YouTube, Twitter, Stitcher, Instagram. I'm everywhere. You could be old school. Send me an email at info at sullybaseball.com. The music, as always, is by Ted Thacker and Patrick Kaliski. Rounding out 2017 with some more Marlins talk with Eli Sussman. Thanks for being part of it. This has been Sully Baseball. I'm your host, Paul Francis Sullivan. Please call me Sully.